Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everyone. I'm popping up on your feed with a bonus episode for Black History Month. Because I'm currently taking a small break before season three comes, I was unable to do a full month of episodes of Unsolved Civil Rights Air Crimes, as I hope to for this year's Black History Month. But I still wanted to do something, and the story I have for you today is significant to our history, and I think it is quintessential to discussions of race and gender back then, but even to this day. It's a story packed with corruption, race, gender, class, revenge, violence, freedom, and captivity. Before we get into this episode, I do want to issue a trigger warning because today's episode is very intense and infuriating. And if you are a Black person listening to this right now, I do advocate for you putting your mental health first, as what is discussed in this episode may be particularly triggering for us. There are discussions of sexual violence and racism, so listener discretion is advised. In 1952, in a small southern town called Live Oak, nestled in Sewanee County, Florida, is where today's story takes place. And it is by all means a story, a true story, but it's one filled with all the makings of a Jordan Peele horror film. It's got racial conflict, sex, murder, and surprise endings. It's a story of complicated and duplicitous race relations between blacks and whites in the South. It's a story of sexual impropriety and the story of the intersection of race and gender during the Jim Crow era. It's the story of Ruby McCullum, once the wealthiest black woman in the town of Live Oak, who committed the most heinous act any black woman could have committed back then. She shot and killed a white man. But not just any white man. She killed Dr. Clifford Leroy Adams, the town's doctor and hero. It was a quiet Sunday morning on August 3, 1952. The southern town of Live Oak was in its natural state. The local white residents were gathered for church service in the First United Methodist Church in downtown Live Oak. This church contained only white congregants because of Jim Crow laws and segregation. While most residents, black and white, were attending their local church services, Dr. Clifford Leroy Adams entered his office. And halfway across town, Ruby Jackson McCollum got into her blue Chrysler with her two children and made her way over to Dr. Adams' office. When Ruby arrived, she left her children in the car as she entered the doctor's office. She paced back and forth, checking to see if anyone was sitting in the waiting room. In Ruby's pocketbook rested her concealed weapon. She walked into the room where the doctor was working, and what happened next changed Live Oak and the whole of Sewanee County for many years to come. Ruby McCullum, 
shot Dr. Adams. Ruby was the wealthiest black woman in Live Oak. Because of this, she was well-known by many in the town. But the story of how she became the wealthiest black woman in a southern town is interesting in itself. Ruby Jackson was born in 1909 in a rural town in Florida. It was the end of slavery and black codes began, and then Jim Crow began. The KKK was running rampant in Florida, so during the Jim Crow era, if you were black and living in Florida, you had the highest chance of getting lynched than black people who lived in other states, even other southern states. Between the 1920s and 1950s, the KKK ruled this area. They were literally judge, jury, and executioner. They were senators, mayors, doctors, salesmen, and saleswomen, too. On Friday evenings and on Saturdays, the KKK would march in downtown looking for black people to attack. Despite this time in history, Ruby was able to attend the Fresedon Academy, which was considered a privilege for any person of color back then. This academy had a reputation for being one of the few places throughout the region where a black child could receive a world-class education. It was considered the best school, even attracting students from the Caribbean and Africa. People who attended this school had ambition and drive, and that's the perfect way to describe young Ruby Jackson. Ruby was also known for being reserved, pretty, intelligent, and a churchgoer. When Ruby was a young woman, a rumor began floating around town that although Ruby was already dating one man, she wanted to start dating Sam McCullum because, in her opinion, he was ambitious and they both could go further in life together. So after dating, Ruby Jackson and Sam McCollum got married. And like many black folks during this time, they decided to leave the segregated South and travel to New York. However, they wouldn't settle down in the North like they predicted because Sam's brother, Buck, got into the insurance business and was doing well for himself. He suggested that his brother and his wife move back to Florida because it would be a great opportunity for them. So Sam and Ruby headed back to the South, to Live Oak, Florida. There, they soon became known as the Black community's heroes. Together, Sam and Ruby were thought of good people in the community, who you could go to if you needed help. They attended church and frequently helped others in the community. They were basically the it couple. They were very well-known and very established. They always had a new car, and they particularly liked to drive a Chrysler New Yorker. They were well-dressed and well-mannered, too. Based on how they dressed and the cars they drove, everyone could tell they were well-off, that they made lots of money. It was also apparent that Sam and Ruby McCollum were a team. Ruby's light didn't necessarily dim after getting married. But there was also this other side to the McCollum family. Sam McCollum was known as the Bolita King. The term Bolita means little ball. People would bet on which number on these small wooden balls would be chosen. It was similar to how the lottery today is run. Bolita was popular all across Florida, along with the tourism and citrus business. Just from Bolita rackets, a Bolita kingpin could earn up to a couple hundred thousand dollars a year at that time. And back in the 1950s, that was basically like being a millionaire. Along with the Bolita gig, Sam also owned jukeboxes that were in the local nightclubs. Many people in Florida at the time, including Sam, were involved in the Bolita business. Even notable, powerful people, people you would think would shy away from gambling, people like town heroes and upstanding members of the community, people like Dr. Clifford Leroy Adams. Dr. Adams came from a long line of influential men, and his ancestors came to Florida before the Civil War. 
The Adams family was well known in the community because stores and homes were built under the Adams name. Some of his ancestors were bankers, businessmen, and politicians, so his name carried a certain level of respect in the community. He and his family were considered upstanding members of Southern society. He was metaphorically a big name in Live Oak, but he was also literally a big person. Dr. Adams was big in stature. He was also considered by some residents of Live Oak as friendly, kind, nice, and the people's doctor. He provided health services to poor people and even black people. However, there was more to Dr. Clifford Leroy Adams. You see, Dr. Adams was involved in Bolita too. According to Sam's brother, Buck, Dr. Adams would sometimes come over to Sam and Ruby's house for dinners. But the relationship between the McCullum family and Dr. Adams was rather duplicitous and complex. There was more under the surface of that friendly business exterior. In 1948, Dr. Adams sexually violated Ruby McCullum, and he continued for a long time. On one occasion, Ruby went to seek Dr. Adams' services for medical reasons, but during this appointment, Dr. Adams had sex with Ruby McCullum. On a regular basis, he would come to her home and have sex with her. It was a well-known fact in the local black community because people would see him walk into her house in the mornings on a regular basis. I struggle to view the relationship between Dr. Adams and Ruby as consensual, given the race relations in the South and his position as a doctor in the community. Just to set the tone of the time, white men in the Jim Crow South were able to take black women at will and do whatever they wanted to them, without fear or punishment. Black women had no rights to say no. If Ruby said no, her whole family could have been killed. You may hear me go back and forth in this episode saying Ruby was raped or Ruby and Doc Adams had sex. This is in no way me equating these two things. Rape is sexual violence and sex is consensual. If it isn't consensual, then it isn't sex. It's sexual violence. But I say this to say that you might hear me go back and forth between these two terms. And that's because in the lens of modern times, and even through Ruby's lens, her relationship with the doctor was referred to as rape. However, during the times in 1952, their relationship was referred to often as just sex and an affair because of the gender and race relations at the time. So I am in no way trying to diminish the violations Ruby endured. I'm just trying my best to tell a historical event with a modern interpretation. And sometimes finding the correct language to show both perspectives is challenging. But I'll leave you to make up your own mind on the relationship between Ruby and Dr. Adams after hearing the facts about this case. In 1949, Dr. Adams got into his first trouble with the law, but a jury found him not guilty. A couple years later, in 1951, Dr. Adams ran for state senate. That same year, a law was passed that required all professional gamblers to obtain a federal license for gambling stamps. This meant that professional gamblers were made to pay thousands of dollars in taxes. Sam McCollum was one of 10 blacks in Sewanee County that became registered with the federal government. Now, Sam's alleged Belita activities were made public, and that was not good for the McCollum family. In 1952, Ruby began showing signs of despondency and anxiety. She was in so much mental anguish that she was treated for a nervous disorder and was hospitalized in Brewster Hospital in Jacksonville, Florida. 
She was first there in January 1952 for 12 days. Some believed that Ruby felt under pressure because of the gambling business, but we know that there could have been other reasons for her mental break. Some attributed her mental anguish to the fact that law enforcement was being nudged to cease their gambling activities in Sewanee County. People were noticing that police weren't doing much to stop Bolita, and some newspapers were even questioning law enforcement's role in Bolita games. It turned out that law enforcement allegedly was taking money from Bolita activities. Amongst the drama with the Bolita games, Ruby experienced a setback with her mental health again after returning home. So she was readmitted to Brewster Hospital in Jacksonville for psychiatric treatment. She was there that time for about nine days, but this moment of reprieve doesn't last too long for Ruby. In May 1952, she experienced another breakdown and was sent back to Brewster Hospital for treatment. In July 1952, Doc Adams traveled with his wife to Chicago to participate in the Democratic National Convention. When he returned to Live Oak, he returned to work. This meant he also returned to Ruby. People thought Ruby was his willing mistress, but the truth is Ruby never had a choice. People at the time thought that Ruby wanted to have an affair with the doctor because of his status. Some even had the nerve to say she was quote unquote honored to be with a white doctor who was showing an interest in her despite her being black. It was the summer of 52, and it is at this point where things really came to a head with Ruby and Doc Adams. Two black women were sitting in the colored waiting room on the Sunday morning of August 3, 1952. Ruby walked in, shot Doc Adams in the back, locked the door behind her, walked out of the building, got in her Chrysler, and drove home. You could say this whole incident was acted out in a normal manner. It was like she was doing her normal daily errands. There was no obvious foreshadowing of this event. This led many to blame Ruby's actions on her mental state. Rumors were swirling around the black part of town that said she was being drugged by the doctor. And it turns out this rumor might have some legs, as Ruby's son, Sam Jr., said decades later that he believes it was possible his mother became a drug addict thanks to Doc Adams and that's why she kept coming back to the doctor regularly. Local black folks believed that something had to be seriously wrong with Ruby mentally because black women during this time didn't just shoot white men, not without reason, because the consequences were too grave. When police arrived at the doctor's office, they found Doc Adams lying dead on the floor between the colored examination room and the colored waiting room. The 42-year-old doctor was found clutching a $100 bill in his hand and Ruby was nowhere in sight as she was already home by now. When she returned home, she made a bottle for her daughter and waited for the police to arrive at her doorstep. When the deputy sheriff arrived, she led him to the bathroom to pay him off. You see, Sam was paying the police protection money for operating the Bolita business for years, so this was a normal occurrence and something Ruby thought she could do in this instance. When Ruby was asked why she killed the doctor, she said she didn't know why in a calm manner. When asked what happened to the weapon, she told them she threw the gun in a hedge behind her home. A young boy and his brother found the gun and played with it until their dad got home. According to those boys, the gun had four empty shells in it and they hid the gun before their dad walked into the house. By this point, word had got around town that a colored woman shot Doc Adams 
and a mob was forming outside the courthouse. Law enforcement was sent out because of the growing fear of possible lynchings. The white community of Live Oak was calling for Ruby McCullum to be lynched. Ruby was escorted out of town by the sheriff as the mob chased the sheriff's car. She was taken to Rayford State Prison where she would await trial for the murder. After Sam learned about what happened between Ruby and Doc Adams, Sam came back to his house, packed a suitcase full of money, clothes for himself and his children, and he ran from town. But soon after skipping town, there was a story circulating that Sam had died from a heart attack in Gainesville. But there was no known history of Sam McCollum ever having heart trouble. For some time, people wondered if he really died of a heart attack or if he faked his own death and fled the country. But the truth was finally revealed when someone close to the family at the time said that Sam swallowed all of his heart pills as a form of suicide to avoid facing everything that would follow after Doc Adams' death. That suitcase full of money was intended for his children and he gave it to his relatives, and they hid it in a barn. But the money was eventually stolen and was never given to his children like he intended. There were even rumors that Sam's friends stole the money. Meanwhile, thousands of mourners gathered for the funeral service of Doc Adams in the First Methodist Church in Live Oak. Many people were enraged that their town hero was slain, especially by a black woman. While preparing for trial, some interesting information came out about Doc Adams. Attorney A.K. Black was going through Doc Adams' belongings after he died, and he found a will for a man named Laverne Blue. Laverne Blue was the owner of the Blue Lodge, which at the time was a prominent hotel. The attorney went to visit Mr. Blue to ask about his will. When Mr. Blue was asked if Doc Adams was the heir of his estate, Mr. Blue said, of course not. Mr. Blue's will left all of his property and his body to Doc Adams. It was discovered by attorney A.K. Black that Laverne Blue's signature and will was forged by Doc Adams. And when Mr. Blue heard of this news, he was certain that Doc Adams had every intention to kill him and take his money at some point. The town of Live Oak was not ready to accept the truth about their town hero and the hypocritical race relations of the time. Live Oak had never seen anything like the Ruby McCollum incident. What many members of the county wanted in this case was for the story of a black woman killing a respectable white male doctor to be plain and simple. The bad black woman kills the generous white man, but of course, it wasn't that simple. Not at all. The Sewanee Democrat newspaper in Live Oak and the Pittsburgh Courier in Pennsylvania covered the trial of Ruby McCollum. The Pittsburgh Courier was a prominent black newspaper at the time. They contacted Zora Neale Hurston, a prominent writer and activist, to get the true story of what happened. She wrote from a black woman's perspective. She was the perfect woman to do the job because she herself was a native of the state and familiar with the race implications and culture of the time and place. On many occasions, she tried to interview Ruby, but she wasn't allowed access to talk to her because she was black. The judge for the trial, Judge Hal Adams, denied Miss Hurston this opportunity, and he would continue to stand in Miss Hurston's way quite often. This judge had been serving the public on the bench for over 40 years, and he knew his way around the law. Judge Hal Adams had an intimidating, stern demeanor. This judge shared the last name, Adams, with Doc Adams, but I couldn't find any info out there if they were related in any way. 
I just find this interesting because it's such a small town and Doc Adams' family had a history in politics too. Ruby McCollum hired attorney Frank Cannon to represent her during her trial. The courtroom was packed full of white men, of course, aside from Ruby McCollum. For black Americans in the South, especially during this time, they knew the court system and the justice system was rigged against them. So there was infinitesimal hope for Ruby. To some, the main purpose of the trial was to protect the reputation of Doc Adams. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. According to trial testimony by Carrie Daly, a woman who was in the waiting room when Doc Adams was shot, Ruby went into the room where Doc Adams was working, reached into her purse for a pocketbook, and handed him some money. She asked for a receipt, but the doctor said he didn't keep books. He said Ruby should come back tomorrow, and his secretary would go through the books with her and tell her what she owed him. According to Miss Daly, Ruby then reached for a book nearby and said, quote, Here's the book. But Doc Adams insisted he didn't have any books. He also said that the money she gave him wasn't enough. He told her she owed him over $100. Then Ruby said she was going to pay her part and the other fellow would pay his. This part of the testimony is unclear. It wasn't made known who this other fellow was. The doctor then said he was going to get what was owed to him any way he had to. He threatened to take this matter to the judge's office. And then Ruby said, quote, I know you will. You can get yours. And then shot Doc Adams in the back. The state argued that Ruby shot Doc Adams because of a dispute about a bill for professional services, according to an article in the Sewanee Democrat newspaper from 1952. Because of the story the prosecution was painting during the trial, there was this narrative that Ruby killed the doctor because of an unpaid medical bill. Nothing more and nothing less. But it soon became apparent that there was a much more complicated relationship between Ruby and Dr. Adams. According to other testimony, Ruby came into the doctor's office on a daily basis. There were times when there were arguments between the two. So the unasked questions during trial were, what were these arguments about? And why was Ruby coming to the office every day? But the relationship between the two was not considered admissible in the court, according to the judge. So these questions were never asked or answered. Soon enough, it was time to hear from Ruby herself. Many black Americans from across the state of Florida came to the trial to see what Ruby McCollum had to say when she was placed on the stand. However, local black people were not showing up in court, according to Zora Neale Hurston's reporting. The boldness of her act made her a heroine to some and the villain to others. During her testimony, Ruby was silenced on so much of what she wanted the court and the jury to know. During the testimony of Ruby McCollum, there were 49 objections by the prosecution and only 8 objections overruled by the judge. Essentially, Ruby was being censored by the judge from speaking her truth about what really happened from her perspective. On the stand, 
Ruby testified that she became pregnant after having sex with Doc Adams. She became pregnant in 1950, and Loretta McCollum, the baby, was born in 1951. This baby was the youngest of Ruby's children. It was one thing to have an affair behind closed doors, but to have living proof of it was another. Frank Cannon, Ruby's attorney, wanted to submit Loretta McCollum as evidence. In the balcony of the courtroom, Ruby's sister-in-law held up the baby for all of the courtroom to see. But Judge Adams instructed the jury not to look at the baby even though some of the jurors did sneak a look. Here was proof that Doc Adams was having sex with Ruby McCollum on a regular basis. I mean, if you look at pictures of Loretta and Doc Adams, she looks just like him. It was proof that the doctor wasn't this good white man who knew better than to be involved with the blacks. He wasn't a true segregationist, but he was actually what some referred to as a nighttime integrationist. He was one of those white men who were interested in integration only in the cover of darkness, between the sheets with black women. The white community really struggled with this truth about Doc Adams. For some time, there was a rumor in the black community in Live Oak that Ruby was pregnant again after Loretta. During her testimony, Ruby admitted that she was pregnant at the time of Doc Adams' murder, and Doc Adams was the father. But according to Ruby, at Rayford State Prison, she was given a shot to get rid of the baby. Black women who spoke up about sexual violence like rape were extremely courageous because they were truly risking everything during that time, including their own life. But in Ruby's case, what was the point in speaking up if she was just going to be ignored and silenced in a court of law? The Sewanee Democrat did not report any of the testimony that Ruby gave or the sexual history between Ruby and the doctor, only reinforcing the idea that the murder was only about the unpaid doctor bill. It was already known that Ruby shot and killed Doc Adams in his office, and there were witnesses who saw it happen, so there wasn't really any disputing that. But in closing arguments, Ruby's attorney argued for a second-degree murder conviction instead of the death penalty. The all-white jury, mostly composed of uneducated farmers, found Ruby McCollum guilty of murder in the first degree. The sentence under Florida law for this verdict was death by the electric chair. Florida had not executed a woman since 1848. In response to the verdict, the Sewanee Democrat wrote, quote, it was all routine, end quote. And I think this quote truly captures the trial of Ruby McCollum. Everything about it was routine. The jury came in there with their minds made up. The judge came to work with his mind made up. The reporters came into court with their pens poised to tell only one side of the truth. The prosecution came in ready to object to a fair trial. But despite this, the alternative of being found innocent would have resulted in the same way for Ruby. The harsh reality was either way, she would have been dead. The only difference is if she was found innocent, she would have been lynched in the streets of Live Oak by the Klan. After Ruby's trial, she was sent to the Sewanee County Jail, and her attorney started the process for an appeal. While Ruby's life waited in the balance, all kinds of things were happening in the outside world. The prosecutor in Ruby's trial, A.K. Black, resigned from his position to represent Doc Adams' widow, who filed a $100,000 lawsuit against Ruby and her late husband Sam's estate. 
The Pittsburgh Courier contracted with Zora Neale Hurston to produce a column in the paper about Ruby McCullum. They published this column in the spring of 1953. These articles by Miss Hurston quoted Ruby and made it seem like she had been in constant contact with Ruby, but that wasn't the case. So when the Courier learned Hurston hadn't been interviewing Ruby this whole time, Zora Neale Hurston was fired from her job at the Pittsburgh Courier. She needed money, though, and she needed to finish the story, so she reached out to her reporter friend, William Bradford Huey. He agreed to try to complete the interviews with Ruby, but this was met with resistance immediately. Huey was told by law enforcement that he needed permission from Judge Hal Adams before interviewing Ruby, but Judge Adams said, quote, I don't want a dead man smeared. I don't want this case commercialized or sensationalized. I want it ended in a quiet, orderly manner, end quote. Huey was so outraged by how he was being treated by the law, so he was determined to see this thing through. His goal was to help Ruby get a new trial, and during the process, Huey learned a lot about Live Oak's so-called respectable doctor. Huey was contacted by Laverne Blue the hotel owner who learned that Doc Adams wrote himself into his will without permission. In a letter, Mr. Blue explained that he owed his life to Ruby because she was the first person to discover Doc Adams was a monster, and she killed him. He said, quote, She rendered us all a service, and I think this community ought to erect a monument to her. End quote. William Bradford Huey also learned, through conversations with the Blue Cross, that they had had a problem with the Sewanee County Hospital, which was co-founded by Dr. Leroy Adams. According to the Blue Cross, up until August 3, 1952, the Sewanee County Hospital was a hassle for the Blue Cross and an unwarranted expense to their subscribers. But since that date, Blue Cross viewed Sewanee County as good for their subscribers and no longer the hassle they once were. It was also learned that all the patient stock had been treating at no cost were actually being claimed by Doc Adams as tenants on his farm that he needed to provide health care for. Huey and Frank Cannon, Ruby's attorney, began working closely together to help appeal Ruby's conviction. In the summer of 1954, the Florida Supreme Court ruled in favor of Ruby McCollum's appeal. It was determined that the judge in her first trial made substantial errors, like allowing the jury to view the crime scene without Ruby present, so a new trial was ordered. For this new trial, the defense was planning to argue insanity. One psychiatrist who treated Ruby said that she had lost somewhere between 60 and 80 pounds from the last time he saw her. She also refused to eat because she feared someone was trying to poison her. Ruby would only eat food brought to her by her brother. It even got to the point that Ruby would make her brother taste the food first before she would eat it. This doctor testified in court that Ruby rested on the cot in the corner of her cell. He also testified that she slept on the springs, not the mattress, because she feared that that was poisoned too. She even covered herself from head to toe in a blanket to keep out fumes she thought were being put into her cell. And she also kept two plugs in her nose to keep out those said poisonous fumes. The psychiatrist also testified that she would spontaneously cry as well, and she showed signs of great confusion too. The psychiatrist said Ruby suffered from prison psychosis. Ultimately, the court found Ruby unable to carry out a rational defense. This technically meant that the court was given the ability 
to hold a person indefinitely in prison until they were deemed fit for trial. If that day never came, then they would stay in prison forever. Ruby McCullum was ordered to the criminal section of the Florida State Mental Hospital by Circuit Court Judge Hal Adams. After Ruby was taken out of court, reporter William Bradford Huey was served with papers saying he was subpoenaed for contempt of court. Judge Adams felt Huey had tampered with a witness after Huey tracked down one of the psychiatrists after learning about the new sanity hearing for Ruby and asked the doctor about Ruby's mental state. So he was going to be put in the same cell that they had just taken Ruby out of. I want to make it clear that even though Huey played a role in moving Ruby from death row to a mental hospital, Huey did not see Ruby as a winner or even a victim. He believed that what happened to Ruby was brought on by herself and that she was just as guilty as the doctor. In his own words, Huey said, quote, Dr. Adams didn't rape Ruby McCullum. This woman was guilty of all sorts of things, including the crime of murder. I don't think there would have been any great, terrible injustice had Ruby McCollum been electrocuted by the state of Florida, end quote. According to Huey, he went through helping Ruby escape capital punishment because of the conflict between himself and Judge Hal Adams. Basically, he didn't like how the judge treated him from day one. Ruby was expected to be tried again for the murder of Doc Adams whenever the hospital authorities deemed her fit. She spent years at the Chattahoochee Mental Hospital. It was believed that this hospital was used as a way to punish people who escaped the death penalty. While there, she rarely saw a physician for treatment, and a later investigation into this institution showed decades of mistreatment. There was electroshock therapy used there, widespread abuse, and savage beatings. Ruby was in this institution from 1954 to 1972. During this time, though, Frank Cannon continued to fight for Ruby to leave the mental hospital in Chattahoochee. In 1972, the Florida Supreme Court decided Ruby was not guilty by reason of insanity. This meant she was no longer living under the shadow of the murder charge. She was finally free. According to Ruby's family, she was a sweet and kind person which made it all the more difficult for some of her younger remaining family to understand why she did what she did. After her stint in the mental ward, they remembered Ruby being concerned with her appearance and looking nice. She was getting back to her old ways, her nature when she was just a young woman, and they loved hearing her talk. She had this slow and precise way of talking. After being released, she gave a few interviews, but in these interviews, she didn't discuss what happened with Doc Adams. She claimed she had no memories of that event. She couldn't even acknowledge that Doc was the father of her child. But Ruby's family maintained that she was in her right mind and her mind was working just fine. She even knew all her family members, until she had a couple strokes later in life. After being released, Ruby often complained that she wanted to go home. Ruby Jackson McCollum lived as a free woman for 18 years after her release from Chattahoochee. She died in 1992, 40 years after her husband Sam, and Dr. Leroy Adams died. The ghost of Ruby McCollum still haunts the streets of Live Oak. Some residents still believe Live Oak is the best place to live in America, and that the town has progressed since the incident with Ruby McCollum. But that depends on who you talk to. 
Still today, there are establishments in town that have strong prejudicial feelings towards people of color. And some people in Live Oak still feel that justice was never done properly in this case. These people feel that Ruby should have received the death penalty. What's so egregious about the handling of this case is that Ruby McCollum didn't ever have an opportunity to tell her truth. There was always somebody else speaking for her and skewing her truth to find the narrative that they wanted. There was Judge Hal Adams, Prosecutor A.K. Black, Reporter William Bradford Huey, and of course, Dr. Clifford Leroy Adams. At the end of the day, Ruby McCollum was silenced. And maybe that's why, even when she was finally free, she refused to tell her own truth, because she knew the world would not accept it. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Lost Crimes Library podcast. If you enjoy the show, please show your support by leaving a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. Also, follow us on social media. You can find us on Instagram and TikTok at the Lost Crimes Library pod. Before you go, make sure you hit the follow button because new episodes drop every Wednesday and you won't want to miss it.